This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, you know, the HIV AIDS crisis showed us just how we can overcome an epidemic situation equitably. An Alberta court will hear an urgent appeal on the policy to require ID for Albertans who want to use supervised drug sites. And COVID-19 health messaging. What have we gotten wrong? I think we've got a lot wrong. So if the emergence of the Omicron variant uh, taught us anything, and we've been hearing about it ever since it did emerge, was vaccine inequity, right? We've been told over and over, if we don't get the whole planet vaccinated, there's no way this is going to end. Um, But think about what happened, because we were starting to focus on getting the whole world vaccinated. And then when Omicron came on, uh, a lot of the rich countries started talking more about getting their populations boosted. (laughs) A lot of people said, well, you've completely abandoned what you need to do here. And... um, it, 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 it's true if you take a look at it. So can we do both? Can, can we um, put attention to where this needs to be done? You know, we're still fighting legal battles to try and release the patents on some of these vaccines so we can increase production and distribution around the world. Crazy thing here is not all that long ago, we fought a very similar battle or battles uh, in trying to handle another epidemic, HIV AIDS. So to draw out those comparisons and parallels and, you know, what we can learn from them, we're going to have a chat now with... Uche Nguaba, who is an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Lincoln Alexander School of Law. Uche, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Shay. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, when we when we talk about this, it really is, you know, when I was reading your, your piece on this, the parallels are really quite striking, aren't they, between the way this epidemic is being handled versus HIV AIDS back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's correct. That's correct. Um, indeed, you see we seem to be repeating the same mistakes with the HIV pandemic in terms of our reluctance to engage uh, and collaborate across uh, borders and to see the epidemic as one that challenges uh, human solidarity. And so uh, we seem to be making the very same mistakes we made with the HIV pandemic, and that is really uh, disappointing. Yeah, and not just once, not just initially, Uche, not like when this started and we said, okay, uh, we talked a lot about global vaccination, but it was all focused on, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. And then when Omicron came out, we sort of abandoned anything that we had been doing in terms of global vaccination. And once again, the Northern Hemisphere, the richer countries said, well, let's get boosters in first. So, I mean, we're not learning at all here. That is that is actually what is most surprising about this. And you know what, Shane? Um, the... The very foundation of international public health has always been, you know, uh, embedded in this idea of solidarity. If you look back into framing instruments, even in terms of the constitution of the World Health Organization that uh, came about in 1946, as far back as 1946, it was clear that for us to take global action in any uh, health challenge that affects the whole of humanity, we need to come together. We need solidarity. So this idea of solidarity has always been there from the outset. But, you know, what happens with saying one thing and doing the other thing is what we see uh, manifesting with, of course, the Omicron uh, situation and how it is being dealt with uh, by 
uh, health institutions, global health institutions and global, global health governance frameworks. But in addition, by countries in the global north who should take leadership because by virtue of being uh, more advanced societies, they're privileged to have access to certain technologies and know-how that if deployed in the spirit of global cooperation and solidarity will help humanity to make progress in lockstep. And you see, the challenge is there's no way uh, you can talk about making progress with overcoming Omicron if every aspect of the world is not also making progress. Because we're so interconnected, you know. Um, uh, if Canada is boosting its populations, but then you still have uh, populations in Guinea-Bissau who haven't been vaccinated, then the likelihood is that the mutation in Guinea-Bissau is likely to come into Canada, and it's going to affect whatever progress you think yeah. you've made. Yeah, That's we've seen challenge. that play out repeatedly. Um, the other one I wanted to ask you about, Uche, is uh, in terms of, you know, the legal battles that have been waged around these vaccines, are there parallels with that and how we handled things back during HIV AIDS? Were there the same sort of legal battles over medications and treatments and therapeutics and things like that? And how were they resolved then? Uh, you see, it comes down to, and you're correct about the legal battles, uh, it comes down to this idea of intellectual property rights, uh, the patents around uh, medicines and vaccines. Global North countries where the big pharmaceutical companies are located are always uh, uh, very conscious about protecting their intellectual property rights because they want to make commercial profits out of their innovations and inventions. And of course, for good reason, they should make profits from whatever they innovate on. But you see, when we're dealing with an emergency, there is a need to temporarily suspend or waive some of these patent rights or these intellectual property rights to allow us to deal with the emergency. Just the same way that when we have a, a, an, a, an issue of public emergency in the states, we suspend certain rules to allow us to deal with the public emergency and then we resume uh, those rules. And so what we're seeing with the patents and uh, the intellectual property rights uh, uh, patents and all of that that have to do with uh, the inventions that allow us to deal with COVID is that because we are dealing with a, such an uh, international uh, issue of uh, concern, there is need for us to waive those rights. Right. We're not asking you to give up your rights. We're asking that you waive those rights to allow us to come up with solutions, urgent solutions to deal with the, the pandemic. And then you can resume having those rights. This situation happened with, with the HIV AIDS pandemic. It took uh, activism and mobilization uh, by uh, South Africa under Nelson Mandela, mobilizing countries uh, to protest uh, this regime to allow South Africa to deal with the pandemic because then the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic was quite a big problem for South Africa. And so uh, the fact that we have made progress in the HIV AIDS, in bringing HIV AIDS under manageable limits. It's because those decisions were taken. It's because those waivers were made. And we're saying, do we have to go through the same fight again right. to be able to make progress with COVID? That's the question. Yeah. Can, can we not learn from what we did last time? Now, you also mentioned there, if you're the companies, you can understand we're talking about a lot of money here. So if you're going to ask correct. them to waive that, they should be financially compensated. And that would make this a lot easier process. Well, it is within, it is within uh, the means of global, global North countries to pick sure. up some of the slack. That's the, question. That's the thing. Um, and then the question then becomes, why should global North countries even bother about doing so? Isn't, isn't that uh, essentially 
uh, putting them in a severe position of disadvantage. But look, stay with me for a moment, Shane. Now, since the COVID pandemic began um, two, three years ago, how much do you think has been lost in terms of economic uh, right. uh, uh, potential growth or progress for countries that are all over the world, including global north countries? I tell you, it is in trillions of dollars. Sure. So when you do the opportunity costs of making waivers and having some immediate minor disadvantage financially compared to having your entire economy going down the drain because of a prolonging pandemic, what yeah. do you think is the better choice to make? It, 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 so, I mean, the numbers are pretty self-explanatory, aren't they, Uche? Of course. It's, it's, it's something that even befuddles the mind why we can't even see the simple logic behind it. But then the reactions of uh, many of the states in the global, global north, and when I mean the global north, I mean the developed nations of the world, the reactions of some of the states is befuddling. It's, it's mind-numbing because you see how it, 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 you, you, you essentially are squandering your future uh, opportunity for recovery. Because when you insist on just protecting your interests, yeah. when you insist on just protecting your population without uh, looking across the border to see how other countries are doing, then what happens is that your opportunity to recover never comes, or you are essentially postponing your opportunity to recover from the pandemic. And so we will continue to have the uh, shutdowns, uh, the lockdowns, the suspension of activities, economic yeah. activities going on, so long as we continue to have the, uh, the pandemic prolonged. And so it's, it's common sense economics yeah. to make the immediate sacrifice now so that we can ensure that in the next one or two years, we are free of the pandemic and can resume normal economic activities. Yeah, Uche, you're right. It is common sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. Um, Uche Nguaba, an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Lincoln Alexander School of Law. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Next week, one week from today, as a matter of fact, Alberta's Court of Appeal will hear an urgent appeal of Alberta's new policy, which essentially says that as of January 31st in the province of Alberta, anybody who wants to use a supervised consumption site will need to provide identification, specifically their Alberta healthcare number. Um, I don't think you really have to be um, engaged in the uh, community around harm reduction and safe consumption and 
um, preventing overdoses and all the rest of these things to understand why that could be problematic for some people. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but we'll see what the courts have to say about it. This uh, court challenge is being launched by two nonprofit groups, Mom Stop the Harm and Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society. And Petra Schultz is one of the founding directors of Moms Stop the Harm, and she joins us now. Petra, thanks for joining us. Always nice to chat. Yeah, good morning, Shay. It's always good to talk to you. Um, now, the argument, as I said, it seems pretty self-explanatory to me, Petra. Um, bringing in this uh, identification requirement creates some pretty obvious barriers, I think, to people wanting to use this service, right? It, it does, exactly. The, the idea behind supervised consumption sites, which are, by the way, federally and not provincially regulated. They are provincially funded, but federally regulated. The entire idea is to make it as low barrier as possible, to make it easy for people to access that service. It's a life-saving service. It works. It connects people with healthcare, and we want to um, make it make people feel comfortable and not scared and worried to warm or walk in. Um, a lot of the, the people who might use the service, uh, they've had negative experiences with the health system that might scare them away. They also might have other barriers in their life. Maybe they have um, outstanding fines and, yeah, uh, uh, and things here. of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so. The most important thing is to keep people healthy and alive, and that should be our focus. If down the road, if for a specific reason there is a healthcare number required, uh, nobody is opposed to obtaining it at that point, but it should not be where we start. Petra, now the government in response has said the reason they want the number is because it would help move um safe consumption site users to other services. And they also say, we won't deny anybody if they can't or don't want to produce a number. Um, so the question I have then is, well, then why why bring this up? Why? Because people are going to hear, hey, you need ID, and they're not going to go. That, that is exactly the point. And the thing is that, well, the government says, we won't deny you service um, if uh, you don't have a number. And the, the, the judge in our first injunction hearing um, asked the, the lawyer for the province uh, what the act says on that point. And the lawyer's answer was, the act is silent on that point, which means it's not in it. What the act actually says is that while a healthcare number is applied for, um, the person will still get service. So if I come in today and say, oh, I lost all my IDs, people will say, no problem, we'll get your healthcare yeah. number. Um, it doesn't say, I will never need one. And, and that is really a problem. And the issue is, even if you don't deny people service, people have had negative experiences. They don't take the chance. And every time you leave something up to interpretation, there can be misinterpretation from a staff person. Um, we know that there are systemic barriers that people uh, who are indigenous face or people of color face barriers. So um, will the white kid coming in get different treatment from the indigenous one? Um, all those things happen when we leave things up to um, individual staff discretion. And uh, our point is, and the, the interesting thing is, the judge agreed with us that there will be what, what is called irreparable yeah. harm, which in this case can be death. The judge agreed with us 
but thought that the province's right to regulate these services was more important than than the health and life of the people who use the services. And we think it needs to be the other way around. The life and well-being of people comes first. I, I think most people would agree with you on that front. Uh, the question I have, and like you say, the, the, the judge uh, who denied the injunction that you were seeking... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. said, you know, this is going to cause irreparable harm to a number of people who use illicit substances now. Yeah. I recognize that. I understand that. But um, I'm wondering what the argument is, because part of what the reasoning was to not give you the injunction was you can't just say this is bad policy. There's bad policy all over the place, all over the world. That can't be enough to overturn policy. Um, governments make policy. So there needs to be a legal argument. What's the legal argument here, Petra, rather than just saying this is dumb? Part of the legal argument is it's a human rights argument uh, that uh, uh, yes, sometimes government makes bad policy. Uh, you know, writing bad curriculum is bad policy, but it doesn't immediately kill anybody or it doesn't infringe on people's human rights immediately. Um, so the the point that um, it infringes on individuals' rights, but also that uh, this regulation, um, when the when the federal government revised the regulations for consumption services. Uh, they revised them in a way that allowed to, to bring these life-saving services to people more readily. And don't get me wrong, they are strictly regulated. They are reams and reams of forms and papers and regulations and reports one has to file to open one of these services. Um, so, But the federal rules are designed to, to pave the way and not obstruct it. Um, the new provincial rules um, will not only impact people who are using them right now, but also um, uh, make it far more difficult to um, open services where they are so desperately needed, like in in the city of Medicine Hat, for example, or um, opening a real service again in Lethbridge where it is desperately needed. So there are a number of uh, reasons that we are arguing, and the judge agreed that we can go forward with our court, um, with our case, um, we will do that for sure. This was just the injunction hearing. Yeah. And, and because of uh, these points, we have appealed um, the judge's decision. And, and we, as you said in the introduction, we have an appeal court hearing on January 27th. Which is very quick. So I think the courts recognize that this is an urgent situation and lives potentially could be uh, at risk, all of this. So at least that has to be encouraging. The fact that, I mean, to get an appeal granted this quickly, Petra, is extremely rare. It is extremely rare, and we were um, we were we were surprised, very pleasantly surprised. We are very grateful for this quick appeal date, and also to the to the province for appealing uh, for uh, uh, for agreeing to go forward with that appeal. I think they are probably interested as well in in having um, more um, having this matter settled uh, in a way. So we are grateful to have this, and uh, I. I have a feeling there are people probably um, in the courts as well as in the government who are concerned about, about the lives and the number of people who are dying of overdose in Alberta. It's uh, some months last year, it was five people a day. It sort of um, goes between five, four and five people a day for last year. And that is just horrendous. Just before COVID, um, we had two people a day uh, who passed, which is still 
too many. One person is, is too many. But where we are right now is just staggering. And we need to do everything in our power to save lives, not obstruct services that save lives. Um, and, of course, we will follow up with you um, following this case and, uh, and check in. Uh, January 27th, it goes to court. Petra, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank, thank you, Shay, and thank you to your, for your listeners for your interest, and I look forward to chatting with you after our hearing. Yeah, we will definitely follow up. Thanks, Petra. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to chat right now with Jessica Mudry, who is the director of the Healthcare User Experience Lab at Ryerson University. Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me. What do you think of the effort to inform Canadians and the messaging that's gone on over the course of the past two years. Um, am I out of touch in saying that I think there's been disaster after disaster after disaster? Um, I mean, I, I think that might be slightly hyperbolic, but um, <laughs> but it hasn't been good. And I think if I were to give this some sort of grade as a professor, that's what I do, uh, I would probably give us somewhere between a, a D and an F. Um, and I always joke too that that I could give I could give this student um, an incomplete because I think what we saw here was um, not a failure to communicate, uh, but actually a, a real missed opportunity for doing some public education alongside the communication. And I think that what we saw was a lot of top-down messaging, um, a lot of scolding, um, you know, some subtle public shaming about what can be done and what can't be done, and, and, you know, trotting out bad examples of behavior, which, of course, caused people to swing the other way. But also, what we never really did was enfranchise the public with some basic science to say, here's what we know about the virus right now. Here's how we think it's acting in the body and in the public. Um, here's how we think it, it sort of circulates or is, is transmitted. And here's what we can all do together about that. And we never we never got that. Um, and I think, again, that was a real missed opportunity for most governments, both at the provincial and the federal level, to say to the public, you know, we we trust you to process some of this information and act accordingly. We we never really saw any of that. No, I think you're right. I think, you know, we have, and we all saw it, we all understand how we have this sudden emergence of everybody's an immunologist and an epidemiologist out there, and they're doing their own research, right, over and over and over. Um, is that a response to the fact that that information wasn't provided? We, you know, in, in terms of how does this virus work? Where do variants come from? All these sorts of lessons. Oh, absolutely. And I think what we, what we could have done was, and, I, and you know, there's, there's a real problem right now in terms of uh, there are some fantastic science communicators who are scientists, but a lot of times we rely on um, the kind of translation of some of this material, the important scientific material, um, to, it, it kind of gets reduced to either clickbait or, uh, you know, uh, um, let's say, you know, a quick news splashy story that's going to attract eyeballs. But but really, we need to almost have like a fireside chat with a scientist who, let's say, has spent their entire life working on this in a lab to say to the people who are doing their own, in quotation marks, research on the Internet, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, say that with, with due respect, but for somebody who has spent 20 years in a lab studying the intricacies of viral transmission, to have them dismissed really quickly by somebody who says, well, I've done some research. No, you haven't. 
But Jessica, part of the problem I think may be here is uh, the fact that, you know, when you take a look at we've got some extremely intelligent, I'm not being disparaging to any of these people, very smart people with extraordinary expertise in science and in medicine and maybe even in management, but no experience whatsoever in being a mass communicator and sitting down and having a fireside chat or being in front of the cameras every single day at press briefings for a chief medical officer of health that had no idea that was going to be part of the job requirement. I mean, being a talented communicator to countries, provinces, cities, that's a skill. I mean, that's not everybody can do that well. Do we need to have more... I don't know, assistance or different ways of handling the communicating part of what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, this is what I spend my, my, my time doing, right? I'm really, really interested in that space between, like, you know, the, the public receiving a message and, and the kind of original science that then has to kind of go through the washing machine yeah. to be translated for people. To, like, science is very complex. The concepts are full of jargon, um, you know, a lot of mathematical terms and like really nuanced ways of understanding certain things. Um, it, it becomes difficult to translate, but it can be done. And I was a trained scientist before I was a, a communication scholar, and I, I can appreciate that sometimes you have to spend you know, some time with audiences to say, okay, what's going to resonate with you? What metaphor could I use to describe this thing that's going to help you understand? Because at the end, we wanted to modify behavior. We asked entire populations, glo- I mean, we asked the globe to, to modify how they acted in the world. And if you don't choose the right words, people are not going to be inspired to do that. You know, and you- that, was the, that was the danger. I mean, I think that what we saw there was you know, human behavior and human desire really needs the right words to be moved into action. If you if you want somebody to do X, you're going to have to figure out how to make them understand X so that it speaks to them, so that it's somehow part of their story, you know, as they go about their daily lives. Um, and again, that's, that's, it's a tall, tall order, but there is that interstitial space between scientific researchers and the public that science communication can, can fill. And Part of my thinking around that, Jessica, is the fact that we've now, because now I believe we're almost in an information war at, at this point. And when you're talking exactly what you're talking about, we have some very gifted broadcasters who know how to communicate. They know the metaphors to use. They know how to sell what they're saying. They're gifted broadcasters, exceptionally talented communicators um, who have taken the other side. They're, they're, they're not the ones that are speaking from the scientific background, but they're so much better at communicating and getting their message across that they're having massive influence, just as much, maybe more, than the actual scientists who are not skilled communicators. I mean, this is it. But, you know, it's interesting because you use the, you know, you just now used a, a metaphor. I'm not calling you out on it, but like, you yeah. know, to say like we're in an information war. And when you say even just that one word war, it, it, it means that there's going to be a winner and a loser. And I'd like to start thinking about the ways in which we can frame some of these arguments, right? Frame some of these issues that come to the public with different words so that the public doesn't see this as, um, you know, uh, a winner-loser yeah. situation or an us-and-them situation. And, you know, we, we can start thinking about these things um, 
you know, like what kinds of verbal filters can we use so that the public can make sense of it in, in a different, maybe less binary way? Um, what we ended up doing in a lot of these cases was doing a really kind of reduced us versus them, right versus wrong in terms of behaviors. We saw this not just in language, but in all the signage everywhere. You know, this is the right way to wear a mask. Yeah. This is the wrong way to wear a mask. This is the right mask to have. This is the wrong mask to have. And you know, I, I think that what we, we have to start doing is, is um, creating almost like a, like a continuum for, for kind of scientific comprehension and, and, and almost like, you know, uh, best practices. Um, you know, science is, is difficult to do, but it doesn't have to be difficult to understand. Uh, and, and I think that once we start giving the public a little, like some tools to do that, we'll be in a much better place. What about the fact that we're talking about what we need to do two years after this started? <laughs> I mean, what does that say about the fact that, you know, we haven't done a very good job of adapting to the situation and learning and getting better as it's gone on? Or have we? Well, you know, I mean, if if we do not take the last two years, and it's kind of shocking to say two years at this point, yeah. it's, like a, it's like a blip. I mean, if we don't take this as, and see it as a learning opportunity and as a pivotal moment for changing how we communicate, not just science, but, you know, like politics and culture and, you know, societal issues, if we don't take this as an opportunity to, um, to, to pivot, I hate using that word, but, but to sort of rethink and reimagine how much better it could be, again, another lost opportunity. Um, you know, heavy, like heavy-duty scientific research, heavy-duty legal research, heavy-duty sociological or cultural research that happens in, in academia should be blasted out every day to the public, much more so than, and, and I say this with due respect, but, you know, like 30 minutes on the weather or feel-good stories. Like, not all stories are, are, are feel-good stories just to get people sitting down in front of the television or in yeah. front of a website. We need to actually start talking about difficult issues and become okay with respectful dissent or respectful disagreement. And too often we just um, either give a top-down directive in the case of science and public health, or we, we, don't kind of, um, we don't kind of respect the fact that there's lots of people who have opinions, and inviting them to the table is actually a really important thing to do. And it's an important thing to change minds um, around things like, let's say, vaccine mandates. We were quick to dismiss people who didn't do it, but we never really asked them in, a, in the same kind of way that, or with the same kind of attention that we were paying to scientists, why? And that's really important, asking people why they think this way. And let's see if we can change some opinions by engaging someone in, in a conversation. Is this kind of work being done at the level that it needs to be done? You and I are talking about it, and I think we're on the same page with a lot of these discussions in terms of ways we can improve what we've done in terms of communicating. Are those kinds of discussions happening um, among politicians, among you know, public health officials, among science um, leaders? Do you think this will sort of um, shine a light on how important communication is in handling something like this, and there'll be frameworks set up to, to do it better? I mean, I, I hope so. Um, and I, again, I can't speak for what's out there because it's hard for me to know what's out there um, in all nooks and crannies. But again, you know, we need to, instead of dismissing the people who are, uh, you know, going against the grain, 
um, or who fall into the whatever it is, 15% who are unvaccinated versus the 85% that are, I mean, maybe we have to start respecting them as 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 individuals and as as fellow Canadians and saying, okay, let's talk about why and and let's talk about the importance of what you're doing, so that to you, so that we can maybe explain the importance to you of what we're doing, um, and it, it's just too often this kind of hand waving dismissiveness about oh that person is stupid that person is an anti science that person is they're still a person they're still a person with convictions and beliefs who deserve the same kind of respect and protection as everybody else does um and so let's let's bring them to the table and say okay let's hear what you have to say um with uh, holding them to the same standards of like of of you know um civility and and you know respectful conversation um so that maybe we can kind of get to the bottom of it because at the end it's it's that kind of human behavior that we would want to change in let's say a vaccine mandate Interesting. Um, yeah, we've definitely heard that discussion as we've gone on. Jessica, I'm out of time, but I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take good care. You bet. That is Bye. Jessica Mudry, who is the Director of Healthcare User Experience Lab at Ryerson University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.